As you dive into this teaching from High Point Church, we pray that it will help you grow in your faith as you believe in, belong to, and become more like Jesus. If these messages bless you, would you consider giving back in support of this ministry? You can give and learn more about High Point at www.highpoint.church. Hi, everybody. It's so great to be here and to be able to share God's Word with you today. I want to bring welcome to all of our campuses from North Aurora, Naperville, Wheaton, Romeoville, Monmouth, online and more. We're glad you're here. We're in a series we're doing called Rhythms of the Soul. And of course, the book of Psalms is a beautiful collection of of psalms and hymns and things that speak to our heart and speak to the need and speak to the struggle and speak to the joy. And today it's going to speak to the joy. And this is actually the title of the message is Better is One Day in Your House from Psalm 84. And this psalm celebrates specifically a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They were going up to worship God in the temple and the singing in this psalm is kind of opens the eyes and the heart of God's people uh, to, to walk in the blessing and the privilege to go into and to, to speak the deep truths of their hearts, to leave behind and confess anything needs to be confessed. And ultimately, there's a beautiful contrast I want you to see here. A comparison, if you will, but I want to talk today specifically that contrasting, trusting, and submitting can change your perspective and reshape your life. And Psalm 84 is going to help us to do that. Let me read Psalm 84 just so we get started, right? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart they are highways, are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca to make way, make it the place of springs, and the early rains, uh, and the early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God, in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look for the face of your anointed, for the uh, day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing he withholds from those who walk Will he, does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now these would actually be read in worship, actually still read in worship in many places in the world. So for 2,000 years, the church has been doing that. Before that, uh, God's people have been reading Psalms and they might read it in different ways. They might read it what we call antiphonally, where one read one verse and then the people respond to another. So it's a object, uh, it's a tool of worship itself. But the teaching in here is worth us not missing. We're going to talk about contrasting, trusting, and submitting can change your perspective and reshape your life. So let's look through the text uh, little by little. We'll just kind of unpack this. And I'm going to kind of, I've got to kind of dig deep in some of this so we can walk through it together. And then we'll come to the application at the end. But it starts with a passion for God and his temple, a passion for God and his temple. Now, this is actually written by the sons of Korah, which is... Uh, I mean, either that sounds like the Klingons in, in Star Trek or it sounds like a bohemian rock band, the Sons of Korah. But uh, they're somehow they've become like the worship leaders in the temple. And so there's not just one place where we think of David as writing many of the Psalms and he does. 
But the sons of Korah are identified as authors in many cases. And they speak about a passion for God and his temple. Matter of fact, let me break it down a little bit in different ways, right? We'll break it down a little bit. First is um, there's a passion to worship God. There's a passion to worship God. It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Now they're going to the temple, which is this place where they might worship God that's uniquely set apart for him. And Lord of hosts is, is actually in, in Hebrew, it's Yahweh Sabaoth. And it's in verses 1, 3, 8, and 12. And, and you'll, see throughout the, you'll see throughout the text the reference to this, right? There's, uh, there's the Lord of hosts in verse 1, 3, and 12. There's the Lord in verse 2. There's the living God in verse 2. My King and my God in verse 3. The Lord of hosts in verse 8. And Lord God in verse 11. I want you to miss this. This is all about God. And the psalmist here is just is seeing there's nothing more lovely, nothing more beautiful as coming into the place where God has uniquely identified his presence, this place called the temple. And the temple represents God's presence. Now, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But God has uniquely identified his presence with the temple. And the psalmist longs for the very presence of God himself. Now, there's a longing that's there, right? There's an appetite, a desire, right? And that may seem like a strange thing. C.S. Lewis actually uh, captures this when he says this. He says, I have, uh, I have rather, uh, though the expression may seem harsh to some, I've rather called this an appetite for God rather than the love of God. He goes on to say, the love of God too easily suggests the word spiritual in all those negative and restrictive senses which it has unhappily acquired. But the appetite for God I have an appetite for God that has all the cheerful spontaneity of a natural, even physical desire. And that's what they, what they felt. There, there was a sense of desire to worship God. You see it in verse 2. It says, my soul longs, yes, faints. Love that. Yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Right? My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. You can feel that appetite. And the psalmists here, their yearning for God moves beyond this kind of spiritual realm, but impacts the physical life. Uh, faints, right? My soul faints. Flesh sings. All of him, his soul, his heart, his flesh, love and long for God. And can't, we can't separate the spiritual and the emotional and physical because all these tie together. There's all this sense that we, can, we don't compartmentalize. All of us longs for the Lord. All of us. And it impacts every area of our life. Vocational, financial, relational, emotional, spiritual, mental. All these realms aren't silos, but all of them, as a follower of Jesus, centuries after this psalm, all of them sing for joy or cry out in the New King James Version. Uh, the verb means a loud cry. The living God is contrasted, again, to the false gods that are no real gods. So you can see them kind of walking down there. Keeping in mind, there's a pilgrimage. They would walk uh, on, a, on a road that would lead to the temple. And then they get to the temple. And it's kind of fascinating. If you're reading Psalm 84, and you start with the, the clear idea that there's a passion to worship God, but then it's as if the psalmist looks up sees in the corner of the temple and says, well, let's talk about the perspective of the birds, right? So we actually see that here in verse 3. It says, even the sparrow finds a home. 
and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. So even, even like nature itself, the, the psalmist, the authors walk in and see the bird and say, this is here, right? There's maybe a familiarity with the temple and even the birds that rest there, right? And it's interesting that sparrow and swallow are kind of common birds. Uh, they're not anything special or spectacular. Bird watchers wouldn't go out to see them yet. They're so close, they get to raise their, their, their baby birds, right, in close to the altar of the Lord Almighty. And I, I think that there's more to the just, I notice some birds when I walk in. I mean, it's the idea that the psalmist says that there's an awe of the blessing. And even the blessing can be experienced by the lowest, right? The word my is used uh, more than once. It talks about the intimacy that the psalmist has to God. We see the word, um, the, the word, my God and my King. We see this in the New Testament, my Lord and my God. We see this expression. The passion, though, you see is so clear. And I got to tell you, I don't think your Christian faith is only passion. I, I don't think that, matter of fact, I, I think that people who are only driven by passion and might not have the resources and resilience for the long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson calls discipleship. But man, if you've lost your passion, this psalm would bring you back to this rhythm of the soul. This rhythm of the soul. So we get a perspective from the birds, but we get then a praise to God in song. A praise to God in song, right? So let's look at verse four. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. There's a, Selah is a word, it's a band name, Selah, right? People talk about Selah a lot. Um, what's interesting, we actually don't know what the word actually means. Some people say it means like a pause, and it could mean a pause, but we don't know. Here's one of the reasons we don't know. God doesn't give us any musical notes in the Bible. Instead, music is going to be expressed in different cultures, in different contexts, in different people, but ever singing your praise is the call of God and His people. Ever singing your praise. So if the sparrows and swallows are welcome to the house of God, how much more welcome are people made in his image who come to sing his praises? For those who walk with God and thus are now walking in his presence, there's always a cause for singing. So the psalmist turns from the birds to the priests who kind of had rooms at the temple, ever singing, it's right to praise God. Now let me talk about this for just a second. Because it's right to praise God regardless of the circumstances, it's right to sing to God. In the face of suffering, in times of plenty, all the seasons of life should evoke praise. But let me, maybe if I could, maybe just as a friend, um, some of you don't sing in church. Let me talk to you for just a minute. Now, I'm not mad at you. I'm not coming at you, but I'm coming for you. Let me explain. Um, singing in church, you might think, is something that you do to sort of warm up to the sermon. Uh, maybe singing in church is something that you think that Maybe men don't do and maybe women do. Um, maybe you think that some men do and some men don't. Maybe you think I'm a woman and I don't. But it seems that people, maybe, maybe you think those are what the people in the front of the church do and we sit in the back of the church so we don't have to sing. I want you to hear that throughout the pages of the Bible, the clear teaching of Scripture is calling you to use your voice to sing. You say, Ed, I can't sing. Listen, that's actually not a reason not to sing. You say, well, I sing off-key. Listen, if you come to church, we just call that singing. I mean, all of us sometimes sing off-key. But here's the reality. Um, 
when you move this from being singing and move this to be from singing songs of praise, it changes your whole perspective. Let me give you an example. Um, invariably, everyone has an opinion on the songs and the music a church uses, and everyone has an opinion on the number of songs a church sings. And I want you to know that I know that for many people, you think we sing too much, and I, and I get that. I'm not, I'm not mad at you. Um, and, I would, and some people say, well, we just we would sing more, but it's generally not the singing that they want. It's the engaging in the praise of our Father. So maybe you've seen people at our church and maybe they, you see them sing loudly, you see some of them raise their hands and you think, man, they're really into this and I just don't like singing. I wanna encourage you to move away from the idea that they're into it because of whatever, because of their gender, because of their enthusiasm, because of their passion. I want you to move away from they're into it and you're not into what a privilege it is to sing to the Lord because he actually calls us to actually commands us to in the New Testament. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God. And I really want to ask you, because I mean, let's be honest, you know we're going to sing better is one day in your house. And I want to ask you not to say, well, that's somebody else. I don't participate, but rather for you to join us, not so that you can practice your vocal cords, but so that instead you can practice the presence of God in our midst and sing praises to him. That leads us to number two in our outline. The presence of God on the way. The presence of God on the way. Psalm 84, verses 5 through 9 is going to get this. But let me remind you, we're going to come to the conclusion here that contrasting, trusting, and submitting can change your perspective and reshape your life. So let's look at the presence of God on the way. Remember, there, it's a pilgrimage, right? It's a pilgrimage. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who, in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now, it's interesting. Inside their heart are the highways to Zion. So Zion, that place to go, that holy hill, that place of worship, the temple, and more. It talks about highways there, but there's something related to the heart. In whose heart? Could that mean that they have it memorized? They know the way? Could be that. Or actually their heart is inclined towards that as well. So those who journey on a pilgrimage to Zion are blessed. However, by the same way, anyone who walks with God can consider themselves blessed as God is everywhere. I want you not to miss this because I've walked this physical road in Jerusalem. And I will tell you, I didn't need to walk this physical road in and up to Jerusalem to experience the fullness of what the psalmist talks about today. See, I want you not to miss this because our strength is found in walking with God and remembering that we're only pilgrims in this life. We're on a pilgrimage, but this life is a pilgrimage, right? So verse 6 says, as they, as, they, as they go through the valley of Baca, right? This is the journey, right? They make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. So the very presence in the dry and the darkness is changed by those who are giving their attention and joy to the Lord. Right, it says, and we, and we don't know all the details here. We'll find out soon. There's some challenge they're wrestling with. But look at Psalm 3011, another psalm, right? It says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So on this pilgrimage, on this way, having been in God's presence and worship actually prepares us for times of hardship. It gives us a practical reminder of the importance of gathering as God's people in worship to help us face the challenges of the weeks and the months and the years ahead. Verse 7 says, they go from strength to strength. 
Each one appears before God in Zion. So they're making this pilgrimage on a literal road that now, centuries later, we know that we're pilgrims in this land and the joy, our, 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 we journey, right, as a traveler, we often go from strength to weakness, but those whose strength is from God go from strength to strength. The goal of the journey is Zion. And today, that's not dissimilar. We don't have a temple. When, when Don and I went to uh, Jerusalem years ago, years ago, gosh, it was maybe 20 years ago, we, um, we went there and we went into the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulcher and we went into, inside the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, there's another little chapel inside of that church. And when we went in there, it was a line of people, of course, people from all around the world, different languages. Guys standing at the front door. Uh, we come up to our time and our turn and we, um, <laughs> we wait and then he says, he goes, kind of grunts and tells us to go in. So we go in and we kneel at the place where uh, the marks, um, the, the, the crucifixion. And uh, about five seconds later, he said, all right, all right, get out. And we kind of left and we thought to ourselves, this was rather anticlimactic. Because I mean, here we were, we had some guy grunting at us to get in and get out. Long line of people. Um, wasn't the spiritual moment that I expected. And then I think it was Donna turned to me. She said, well, you know, he's not here. He's risen. So there is a change in our longing. Our longing now is not for a physical destination in Jerusalem. You can live your whole life. As Christians, we're not called to take a, a pilgrimage to fulfill our spiritual life. Though I think that's great. You want to take some time, go on a path, go on a journey, walk through, think through history, think through the teachings of Scripture. But our journey is ultimately a journey through this land. We're pilgrims, but we do look to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, right? This is our future. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, out of heaven from God, and prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the goal of the journey is Zion. Believers have our hope in the New Jerusalem, that new heaven and that new earth doesn't end there. Let's keep going back into and walk through the text, right? So instead of being faint and weary, now we're going from strength to strength. We're going stronger and stronger. Verse 8 says this, O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, selah. Now what happens here? We don't really know. It seems that the psalmist turns to a prayer due to some, maybe some unknown tragedy. The psalmist grounds the prayer deeply in the history of God's faithfulness. Don't want you to miss that, right? Oh, God of Jacob. What does that mean? He's, he's going back generations and saying God was faithful to Jacob, right? The, the same God who was faithful to Jacob, who blessed Jacob, you can count on his people today. And this is, this is worth our attention. So, so the psalmist says, oh, Lord, God, our host, hear my prayer, give ear. Oh, God of Jacob, selah. A pause, maybe? A marker to say there's something significant. Verse 9 goes on. Behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. Now, what does that mean? Could it be the king of Israel, the anointed, especially anointed for the, uh, the role, the office? Uh, maybe the psalmist um, was thinking about, about David or maybe um, Solomon. 
or, or maybe it points to the Messiah, the, the ultimate one who's anointed as well. But we see the beauty here in the second part of the psalm. And, and we see in the second part of the psalm a, a, a picture of what it means to be a people on pilgrimage. And remember, contrasting, trusting, and submitting can change your perspective and reshape your life. So we're walking through, right? So number one, a passion for God in his temple. Uh, Number two, the presence of God on the way. And number three is going to be the heart of our application, a proclamation, a proclamation of ultimately trust in God. Now that's what we're going to talk about. Contrasting, trusting, and submitting can change your perspective and reshape your life. Let's look at them first contrasting. Now, one of the things you learn early on is don't compare yourself to others all the time, right? That's not healthy. But there is a healthy comparison. And the healthy comparison is between God's ways and any other way. Or God's best and anything else is not worthy. Verse 10 says, contrasting for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And I know it just, if you've been in church, you've been at High Point, you know, I know the soundtrack's playing in your head right now. Better is one day. I get it. I get it. But stay with me. We are going to sing that. We just, if we, you know, let's be honest. If we didn't sing that song today, we just should have gone home because we have not done the work that we needed to do. We've got to sing this song. And you'll sing that at the end. And I hope you'll take my earlier exhortation and sing it with your heart and join others in singing. Not finding an excuse that you're not a singer, but joining because you're a Christian. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So there's the contrast, right? The psalmist sings about the comparative goodness of God. He's contrasting, right? One day in God's courts better than a thousand days anywhere else, right? So it's a contrast, right? <laughs> it's like a, a relative difference between one thing and another, right? It's the, uh, maybe, maybe the difference between um, kissing my wife for a minute, which seems like a second, and putting my hand on a hot stove for a minute, which seems like a year, right? The contrast is powerful, right? And serving as a doorman or a temple guard in God's house, man, it's better than, than the finest tents of those who don't follow God, which actually, this looks, this looks back to Psalm 1, uh, which, gosh, that was weeks and weeks ago now, but uh, which compared the righteous to the wicked. Remember, Pastor Ron contrasted the righteous and the wicked. Now, I love this, right? I mean, this kind of contrasting is a powerful thing. I think if people contrasted more between God's plan and being outside of God's plan, they would make different choices. I, I often tell people in uh, marriage counseling, I might say to somebody, maybe, maybe I'm actually talking to, the, to one, of the members of a, one of the members of the couple, and they're struggling and they're like, well, maybe I should just go well. And what I, what I say to them is, listen, you're, 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 you're thinking about an affair. Take just a moment. How about you contrast the results of this, right? You, right now, you're just seeing, well, this would be, you know, this person will make me happy. And, and I said, well, let's, let's contrast fully this. You're going you're gonna to dishonor the Lord. You're going you're gonna to crush your children. You're going to transition out of a relationship that has been stability. Well, let's, let's, let's look at this way. said, what if we instead worked well on this relationship, honored the Lord in this marriage? And so that contrast, people are like, hey, wait a second. When I rightly look at the circumstances, I make a different decision. Well, when you rightly look at God's plan and God's design and God's best, nothing else seems significant. Let's look at what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing God. How much of stuff? Everything. 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing God. He's contrasting the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered loss of all things. Count them rubbish. They're garbage. They're trash. They're nothing. In order that I might gain Christ. I love that. So contrasting is a key thing, right? Spurgeon puts it this way, famous preacher of old. He says, God's worst is better than the devil's best. So contrasting, right? I said, I said all along, contrasting, trusting, and submitting can change your perspective and reshape your life. Let's look at trusting. We see it in verse 11. For the Lord God is a son. Only place in the Bible that God's referred to as a son, S-U-N. For the Lord God is a son and shield. The Lord bestows. I mean, so much about God. The Lord, the Lord. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Listen, you can trust him. You contrast. There's a contrasting element. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And then there's trusting. You know, he's a son and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. He's not going to withhold good things, right? The son, by the way, would refer to blessing and the shield to protection. Um, and, and this reminds us, right? Uh, let me quote Spurgeon again, right? Uh, a son for happy days and a shield for dangerous ones. A son above, a shield around, a light to show the way, and a shield to ward off its perils. Love that. So if this sounds familiar, it reminds us what Jesus said, right? In Matthew 7, 9. If you then, who are evil... You know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's telling you to trust him. So contrasting, right? Better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. And now trusting, you can trust the Lord, right? And maybe that's where you're stuck right now. Maybe, maybe the contrasting reminds you that God has a better plan and then you've been struggling with choosing the other plan. And now trusting, maybe that's your area. But the last point might even be the hardest part. It's submitting. Submitting, a word we don't like, but submitting to the Lord and His goodness. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Right? We saw trusting when it talked about that He's going to give good gifts, but the psalm, the psalm, psalmist begins with this desire to fellowship with God in verse 1 and ends with encouraging us to fully have confidence and submit to Him contrasting his ways and our ways better is one day in your house and a thousand elsewhere. Trusting, saying, doesn't he take care of us? And then submitting to God. Contrasting, trusting, and submitting can change your perspective and reshape your life. Because here's the thing, sisters, brothers. I get that this journey of life, remember this is all built around a journey. This journey of life can be difficult can be frustrating, can be, uh, can be tiring. That's one of the reasons we gather together as a church. And, and, and I recognize a gathering, boy, that took on some significance in the last year. But we've also felt the lack of that gathering. We need one another. Uh, we want you to join in that praise. I've already exhorted you, and hopefully, hopefully you know, in a way that could be received, that... Um, that for those who sit out from the praise, or maybe you come in late so that you can you know, skip some of the long music and get to the sermon, can I just tell you, I think a more mature approach would be actually to come early so that you can be here when the praise begins to be lifted. Or tune in early, because so many are watching online as well. Because you don't want to miss one moment, because better is one day in your house to the Lord than thousands elsewhere. But contrasting those things can shape our whole life. 
saying this is what the Lord wants, this is the Lord's best, everything else is second, third, tenth, a thousandth in priority. Contrasting, trusting that, you know, God's, God's gonna walk with us, God's gonna give us strength. Doesn't mean everything's always gonna be easy, but trusting Him in the midst can change everything and submitting is so connected to trust. Actually, he uses the word itself, right? The Lord of hosts uh, blesses the one who trusts in you. But one who trusts is one who's actually moved from this kind of this intellectual knowledge that, yeah, I trust God, to something much more so, who submits to God and His goodness. Sisters and brothers, in just a minute, we're going to sing better as one day in your house, one day in your courts, than thousands elsewhere. I don't want you to sing with enthusiasm. I want you to sing it contrasting, trusting, and submitting. I know that's a lot to hold in your head, but we can do this. Contrasting the good glory of God with anything that's second to a thousandth best. Trusting Him. And maybe that's where your point of need is right now. You're just struggling, you're unsure. And I want to say to you, the psalmist would remind you to trust in the Lord. But ultimately, contrasting and trusting without submitting really doesn't, I mean, trust is an activity to trust in Him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the words that it speaks to us and the call that it gives in us. Father, we do indeed believe that better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. So this psalm of pilgrimage, we, we literally can picture people walking on the side and up of a mountain to Jerusalem. But Lord, it reminds us that we're on a pilgrimage in a world that draws us away, that wants us to say their way is better, or maybe even our own way is better. But Lord, remind us that our life is lived well when it's contrasting. These are the rightful, wonderful things of God. Nothing else is as good or as important. Trusting, we can trust in you, Lord Jesus, and then submitting. That's what we do today, Lord. We submit our lives to you. As we sing, as we give you praise, as we give you glory, we submit our lives to you. May you be glorified in and through us. For it's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.